0: الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا ان هدانا الله واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير واشهد ان محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفييه وخليله ارسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا محمد ورسول الله والذين معه اشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله اسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الاخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد، ومن يعص الله ورسوله الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا. أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته، وأحذركم من عصيانه. ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد والشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم ولا تأكلوا أموالكم بينكم بالباطل وتدلوا بها إلى الحكام لتأكلوا فريقا من أموال الناس بالإثم وأنتم تعلمون brothers and sisters committed Muslims this is the one hundred and eighty-eighth ayah of Surah al-Baqarah it happens to be the last ayah in the section of ayat pertaining to Ramadan and it has not been even a month yet that we have been out of Ramadan and so the lessons that we may have learned in Ramadan the willpower that we may have built ought to still be fresh in our minds and it ought to make us keen to be able to have a resolve and a determination to direct the world into a situation where it is in greater conformity to the command and the counsel of Allah the key lesson of course to have been learned in Ramadan is to develop Taqwa and Jumu'ah also is a day of Taqwa and Taqwa should be understood to be that means of conveyance that drives a personal morality into a social conscience and so when we characterize Taqwa as a means of conveyance, do we mean that it is an automobile, or a bus, or an airplane? Or perhaps that means could be construed as a university education, or street smarts, or perhaps corporate experience? but obviously none of these things characterize the meaning of the word Taqwa Taqwa is the consciousness the protection that a Muslim gains against Allah's corrective justice his corrective power when he engages in activities that are perhaps counter to what Allah Ta'ala has recommended in his guidance a rough translation of the ayah referring The meanings of the words to Dina amanu So Allah Ta'ala is commanding them Do not take your commonwealth And present it in a corrupt fashion To those who are in positions of rule Or decision making such that those people convert your common into a mechanism that consumes popular wealth. And do not do this while you are cognizant of what is happening. And so the words of the ayah begin with, Wala Literally, they mean do not eat your commonwealth. And so keep in mind that in the month of Ramadan, we abstain from eating food and we part with liquids. And that abstention from eating food in the sense of personal morality extends into the social sphere of eating that which people consume without having any discipline which is wealth and so allah ta'ala is saying do not eat in a literal sense your commonwealth or do not digest your commonwealth in a way that You reproduce it, to present it to people in power. And so why do we bring up these ayat? One of the human activities in our world today that falls under the purview of this ayah, meaning that the words of this ayah describe this activity, One of these activities is called lobbying, where people in an institutional sense, in a structural sense, present large amounts of money and assets to people in power with a view to influencing the the decisions of government in favor of a special interest or vested interests. And obviously the ayah is telling us that you know if you conform to Allah's guidance, his command, that you are not allowed to engage in such activity. And this applies even to those Muslims who look at so-called democratic societies, and they see a certain pathway to power. And they say that, okay, we see this certain pathway to power and we want similar kind of power. So why don't we follow the same design that they followed in order to get their power? Why don't we follow the same path? Why don't we take the same route? Why don't we engage in the same activities so that we have commanding power to influence the decisions of government and yet this eye is telling us that we can't engage in that kind of activity and of course if we were paying attention in Ramadan and we applied our minds which are free of the consumption of food and liquids and intimate behavior with our significant others When we are free of those things and we apply our minds to these ayat, we would understand that our path to power is according to the methodology and the approach and the procedure of Muhammad and not those other people that we don't consider to be teachers. The means and the ends, in our case, both have to be halal. They both have to be sanguine. And so, my approach in talking about lobbying is not going to be in a theoretical sense. I'm not going to talk about how it is affirmed by the First Amendment to the US Constitution and that lobbying activity contributes to a healthy debate and if you have advocates on both sides, that the best policy emerges. I'm not going to talk about it from that point of view. It is clear enough that people ought not to be presenting their commonwealth to people in positions of rule. That's clear enough. The ayah is, the words of the ayah are clear. And so there's no need to talk about theoretics in that regard. I'm going to talk about lobbying in terms of something that's real something that's affecting us every day something that's not only affecting our finances but it's affecting our lives in terms of whether we live or not and so I'm going to try to talk about lobbying within the context of the situation in Yemen to try to drive it home in sort of a very visceral sense so that we feel it on the inside Yemen is the fifth poorest nation on earth, and by far it is the the poorest Arab nation. And defense contractors right here in the United States have been making a killing on the war that's been going on there for the past five years, and they've been making a killing both literally and figuratively. that war was started officially in 2015 and those who started that war in the UAE in the United Arab Emirates and in Saudi Arabia they declared that they were going to war right here in Washington like if you're a country that's getting ready to go to war do you go to some other capital and some other part of the world and declare to your people that you're going to war? or they have to come all the way to Washington to declare that that they're going to war against Yemen obviously there's a connection and over the past it's been a good 16 months now the, the Yemeni Ansarullah movement has been striking back and in a sense they've brought the entire war to a standstill But nonetheless, over these past five years, according to some estimates, 90,000 people, civilians, have been killed. And we think that these estimates are low. It's probably that three-fifths rule that used to apply here for voting of African Americans back in the 1800s that for every five that are killed, we count three. And so it's probably a lot more than 90,000 civilians that have been killed. But nonetheless, we'll go by some of these figures that are floating around in the internet universe. There are now 131,000, no, there are now over 1 million cases of cholera in Yemen. And cholera, as you might know, is a disease that affects the small intestine. It's a bacterial disease that is transmitted by contaminated standing water. Basically, if you don't have clean water to drink, then you can acquire this bacterial contamination. And obviously, it's uh, for those of you who know about it, it's, it's accompanied by fits of vomiting, and diarrhea and what most of you may not know is that if you don't have the proper medications diarrhea can be fatal and in a lot of parts of the world where people are suffering famine for them diarrhea is fatal that loss of fluids is fatal in addition to that There are over 113,000 children who have either died due to starvation or disease in Yemen. Children! They're not child soldiers. They're not out attacking anyone. But because the infrastructure of their homes and their society has been destroyed, they starve to death. Beyond that, right now as of today, there are over 18 million people in a country of 22 million that are in danger of losing their lives by starvation by the end of the year. Do you want to talk about a holocaust? No, we don't own that word, we can't use that word. In today's political climate, that word is only to be used to tar people who make a legitimate criticism of those who are enacting wars of this kind. And so, yeah, we're not allowed to use that word Holocaust. Even though the number of people who might lose their lives is three times the figure of those who are claimed to have suffered in World War II. And yet, because these are poor people, because these are people who happen to be on the wrong side of the argument, because they happen to be cannon fodder, it doesn't matter whether their numbers are 1 million or 200 million. They can be sacrificed in this way, Without any compunction and without any conscience. The vast majority of these civilians they were killed by Saudi airstrikes using American manufactured bombs, American missiles, American jets, American reconnaissance. American, American targeting equipment. And what were they bombing? They were bombing homes, hospitals, schools and school buses, wedding parties, funeral processions, marketplaces. And don't tell us that this is collateral damage or these civilians were killed by mistake. When you kill this number of civilians, and when you put an entire population in danger of starvation this was an intended consequence of your strategy of war you mean to starve these people you mean to kill them in their homes you mean to kill them in hospitals while they're seeking medical treatment you mean to starve them to death you mean to kill them by disease you want your problems with them to go away because they're dead. And because there's no more protest from a people who are suffering and starving. And so you might ask, and this is a legitimate question, how is it possible for people who just came out of their tents 50 years ago to launch a war with this level of sophistication? That's a legitimate question. How is that possible? Well, the easy answer is because they have help. They have resources that some other people in other parts of the world need. And so they have help. American manufactured munitions, manufactured by such firms as Boeing, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, they're found in over a dozen sites that were bombed by Saudi airstrikes. Since the beginning of the war until now, the United States is responsible for 68% of the arms exports, the arms imports into Saudi Arabia. They're responsible at the same time for 64% of the arms imports into the UAE and 65% of the arms imports of Qatar. to bomb civilians with the use of American manufactured missiles, bombs, and jets is considered by the United Nations to be a war crime. Yes, it's considered to be a war crime. But obviously, that distinction is only applied to the enemies of the Zionist imperialist project. So if their enemies engage in such activities, all of a sudden it's war crimes, crimes against humanity. But if we engage in those activities, call it collateral damage. Call it some other euphemism, but don't call it a war crime. That part, that wedding party, in which 22 people were killed, that bomb came from Raytheon technology. That school bus, which was blown up, in which 26 children were killed, that bus was blown up by a laser-guided United States MK-82 bomb. 80 people in a marketplace, men, women, and children killed in 2018, were killed by the same bomb. And so these defense contractors, they see Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the entire Gulf on the Arabian side. They see this as a huge market, as a tremendous opportunity to make lots and lots of money. And not only money selling arms but also in the operational maintenance of these arms. For obviously these people who are launching these missiles into civilian areas, they don't have the training or the expertise to maintain these weapon systems. These are very complex systems that require quite a bit of training to manage or to maintain. And so these defense contractors say that there's an even bigger opportunity they say as much as 150% more to maintain this war equipment in operational f- fashion. In 2018 The United States sold four and a half billion dollars worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And 1.2 billion dollars in weapons to the United Arab Emirates. And in 2019 that amount is expected to double. And Allah forbid if there's a war that's launched against the Islamic Republic, that figure could go up five times. but because of the way that the US laws especially when it pertains to the selling of arms are set up because of the way those laws are set up any of these sales of arms require US government approval and this is where the lobbyists weigh in very heavily Just to give you an example, in 2008, the official U.S. budget was $2.9 trillion. Of this, some $700 billion were directed towards the Department of Defense, the Department of State, Homeland Security, and the War on Terror. And at that time, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was still going on. But that didn't come out, whatever was going to be spent on those two wars was not going to be coming out of the official budget. That was going to be funded through special appropriations. And so now we know that the cost of both of those wars ranged into the trillions of dollars. And so in 2008, you can estimate that one half of that budget, of the $2.9 trillion budget, was dedicated to war making. One half, or something like one and a half trillion dollars. By contrast, the Department of Justice only received 20 billion dollars. And so if you really want to know what somebody is doing, See how they spend their money. And so if you're spending seven hundred or one and a half trillion dollars in what you call defense, but what in reality is war making, then you could expect that you're going to have a bunch of corrupt people who are going to be trying to grab at that pot of money. That's why you don't have any justice contractors in the United States you have a ton of defense contractors because there's one and a half trillion dollars available. Has anybody heard of a justice contractor? Or a lobbyist to the Department of Justice? Because justice is just not a priority for this country or for other so-called democracies around the world. If it was a priority, they'd be spending one and a half trillion dollars on justice and 20 billion dollars on war making. And then you'd see that there's a lot of justice in the world and a lot less war. But if you're spending this much money every year on war making, then that's what you're going to get. The arms industry, the defense contractors in, in the United States, They have over 1,000 registered lobbyists on Capitol Hill. 1,000. The arms industry spent over one and a half, uh, they spent over $125 million last year in lobbying activities. 15 million of that was spent by Boeing, some 12 to 13 million by Lockheed Martin and by General Dynamics, respectively some $5 million by Raytheon. In addition to that, Saudi Arabia spent 40, $40 million last year in money given to PR firms to lobby for them in Congress, in the media, and in the White House. And when you hear the, when you hear the term PR firm, that's just a that's just a propaganda outfit that can make up look like down. That can make hard look like soft. That can make right look like wrong. And most importantly, it can make the criminal look like the victim. And it can make the victim look like the criminal. So, so Saudi Arabia gave 40 million dollars to PR firms to lobby for them on Capitol Hill. And these PR firms in that year made over 4,000 contacts with congressmen, with members of the White House, and with members of the media. That's over 10 contacts a day. And besides these kinds of firms, there are firms, lobbying firms, that have as their clients both the seller of arms and the buyers of arms. One of the key ones is the, is the so-called McKeon Group, it's right here in Washington. It's headed by a, a person named Howard McKeon. He's a Republican congressman who used to be the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And he counts as his clients Saudi Arabia, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. And so he has both sides covered. He's lobbying for the people who sell the arms, and at the same time he's lobbying for the people who buy the arms. Sort of like a closed loop type of operation. And then there's similar firms that operate for the United Arab Emirates, and for the other Gulf monarchies. And so for the past 18 years, through the activities of these lobbyists, war has been a very lucrative business for these defense contractors, for the American war-making machine. In fact, war has been so lu- lucrative for them that they don't want war to go away. It's such a money maker for them that they feel that permanent war means permanent profits. And as I stand here right now, a lot of these former lobbyists and executives in these companies that make up the defense contracting group here in the United States, they're embedded in highly sensitive positions in the Trump administration. In fact, the outgoing acting Secretary of Defense, Patrick Shanahan, he was an executive for Boeing. And when he leaves his position here, he's probably going to go back to one of those positions with the defense contractors, because he knows how the lobbying activity works right here in Congress. He knows what pockets to line and what wheels to grease in order to keep these contracts flowing to Boeing. And if that wasn't enough, the incoming acting Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, used to be a lobbyist for Raytheon. And so it appears that the key executive positions in the White House, the key representative positions in Congress, and the key positions in the media, that it's just a revolving door. Sometimes you're a congressman, sometimes you're an analyst in the media, sometimes you're a CEO of a defense contractor, and it's the same people who are changing positions all the time. And because it's a revolving door of people, it's also a revolving door of money. And so you can see why the money doesn't trickle down as they would like to the average person. It's just circulating amongst these people at the top. And so you can imagine, you don't really have to be inside of his head with all of what you've just heard, you can figure for yourself why the president vetoed a bill in April that would have prevented the U.S. from further participation in the war in Yemen. The guy in the White House, he's a money man. He wants money. He wants lots of money. And he knows where he can go to get it. And he also knows that if they're not willing to cough up their money, Let's start a war here or let's start a war over there. And as soon as we start the war, they, they'll feel that their security is threatened and they're going to beg us to sell them more arms. And so they have everything worked out. And so what conclusion can we draw when we listen to these ayat? kulu so what conclusion can we draw? First of all, lobbying is just a hundred dollar word for bribery. Let's not allow their thousand and one euphemisms to cloud our judgment about what's taking place. Whether you want to call it Bribery, you want to call it lobbying, you want to call it brown nosing, call it what you want The Qur'an and Allah's words tell us what it is and they tell us that we have to shun it The second thing that we need to learn Is that any corporation That makes a windfall amount of money in a very short amount of time, we ought to realize that such a corporation is the nexus of all evil. Any crime that you might want to think of, bribery, corruption, extortion, murder, genocide, theft, prostitution, what have you, think of any crime under the sun and you'll find that the nexus of those crimes is a U.S. corporation. And if we are reading these ayat with our hearts and our minds, these are the kinds of things that ought to occur to us when we live in a real world and when we are required to do more than just complain about injustice. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم (laughs) Alhamdulillah, <laughs> wassalatu salamu ala Brothers and sisters, last week we talked, in the second part of the khutbah, we talked about the war build-up or the war plans against the Islamic Republic of Iran. thankfully this war at least to the present moment did not take place although obviously there's a cold war going on and part of this cold war is related to these economic sanctions with the Islamic Republic has had to endure for the past 40 years the current thinking here in Washington is to place a much larger raft of demands on any agreement that might take place between the two countries and that raft of demands in that raft of demands one of the key ones is that Islamic Iran ought to give up its uh, its ballistic missile program now you might think that from the way that the enemies of the Islamic Republic are floating their rhetoric in the public airwaves that Iran is in possession of ballistic missiles that can reach all around the earth and that the number of ballistic missiles it has far exceeds not only anyone in that region but rivals that uh, their stockpile rivals that of some of the most powerful countries on earth. I mean, if you were to listen to the rhetoric that you hear in the airwaves, that's what you would think. The danger from this country is imminent. That they're chomping at the bit, despite the fact that they didn't say that we have stuff cocked and loaded, that they're the ones who are chomping at the bit To destabilize that entire area and the world. But did you know. That just in that area. Saudi Arabia. Israel. Pakistan. India. And a half dozen other countries. possess ballistic missiles of a higher technology with a greater range. And you never hear about them. These countries have ballistic missiles with a range of 2,600 kilometers. Islamic Iran doesn't have a ballistic missile of that range. And you, you don't hear anything in the media about how the world is in danger because Saudi Arabia has ballistic missiles. Everybody in the world knows. that the nexus of terror, of ISIS, of Al-Qaeda, is Saudi Arabia. And yet, nobody is talking about how they have ballistic missiles, how these ballistic missiles could perhaps fall into the hands of terrorists. Nobody's talking about it. But that doesn't mean that the information is not out there. It's just that it's not in the hands of people who need to present this information in public forums. As far as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and Islamic Iran's nuclear program Islamic Iran is a signatory to the Nuclear Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and to date nobody can point to a single violation of the Islamic Republic from its treaty responsibilities, not a single one. And under its treaty obligations, any signatory to the NPT is allowed to enrich uranium but not to a weapons grade for civilian purposes. And that's what Islamic Iran has been doing. And to date, I am aware of no other country in the world which has taken a moral position against weapons of mass destruction, against chemical weapons, against biological weapons and against nuclear weapons. The citadel of democracy and freedom and liberty and the rule of law, they have not taken a moral position against the use of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. But yet, a country whose moral principles have been challenged with 40 years of sanctions, with 40 years of economic restrictions, with 40 years of imminent survival, with 40 years of their survival being challenged, this is the one country that has taken a moral position against weapons of mass destruction. Their moral principles have been challenged, but nonetheless, not only have they taken a moral position against the weapons of mass destruction, they have designated to the rest of the world that our moral position prevents us from pursuing the development and the manufacture of nuclear weapons. And so while they can't put their money where their mouth is, they certainly put their principle where their mouth is. And so even though the NPT permits a signatory to enrich uranium up to 20% for civilian purposes, Islamic Iran has only been enriching uranium to 3.75% three and three-quarters percent in addition to that once the JCPOA was signed that's the joint comprehensive plan of action that Trump withdrew from once that was signed in the previous administration Islamic Iran reduced the number of its centrifuges from 20,000 to 14,000 that means that now as of this moment it only has 6,000 centrifuges to enrich uranium In addition to that, even though it wasn't asked to do this it completely decommissioned the plant that it had at Fordell. And now that facility is just a research facility for radioactive isotopes. And this has been verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. And beyond that, the heavy water nuclear plant that they had at Araq that has been completely decommissioned. In fact, the nuclear core has been filled with concrete. This was the plant that their enemies were saying was producing plutonium as a waste product. And it's true that a heavy water reactor can produce plutonium as a waste product. But now, Islamic Iran has completely shut down that reactor and has filled it with concrete. And again, this has been verified by the IAEA. Before the JCPOA, Islamic Iran had a stockpile of 10,000 kilograms of enriched uranium. Some of it up to 20%. After the agreement, now they only have 300 kilograms of enriched uranium. And so they've bent over backwards. They've gone the extra mile to prove that they're in compliance. And all of this has been verified by the IAEA. In addition to that, the IAEA supported by the P6 plus 1. have an intrusive cradle-to-grave inspections regime that they've imposed on Islamic Iran. Meaning that the entire nuclear fuel cycle, all the way from their uranium mines, to their manufacturing facilities, to the facilities that manufacture the rotors for the centrifuges, all of those have to be made available for inspection And Islamic Iran, has made all those facilities made available for inspection. that's not all. This robust inspections regime extends to include any imports that the Islamic Republic may make with regard to parts that would belong to the nuclear fuel cycle. And so they can't smuggle anything in and they can't purchase anything on the international market without it being noticed or without it being considered to be a violation of the JCPOA. And so now I ask you, why is a country that has no nuclear weapons and has on myriad occasions indicated that it does not want any nuclear weapons and that it is not going to engage in the construction or the development of nuclear weapons, why is it subjected to this kind of intrusive, for this kind of an intrusive assault? on its national character and its national identity. It said that Germany and Japan can go nuclear in a weekend. That means that they not only have the capacity and the know-how to enrich uranium to weapons-grade uranium, uh, to weapons-grade uranium, but they also have the scientific structure, the technological infrastructure, to be able to accomplish that if they're given the go-ahead to do it. And yet we hear about no intrusive inspections of those countries. Despite the fact that the Fukushima, Fukushima disaster is still fresh in our minds, had the IAEA been investing its resources to investigating actual dangers of nuclear energy in the world, they might have noticed that that reactor in Japan was about to go critical, but because all their resources are dedicated in an area where it's not needed, they have all of these violations which are taking place all over the world and are not being noticed, and why is this happening? Because once again, it's not whether Islamic Iran has nuclear weapons or biological weapons or chemical weapons or anything else. The only thing that's a critical problem for their enemies is that Islamic Iran, Iran's ideas and their thought processes, their commitments and their principles present an existential threat to their enemies. It's not their oil, it's not their weapon systems, it's not their economy, it's nothing else. It's their very principles, their very ideas, their very approach to human relationships in the world that present some kind of a threat to their enemies. And it's because of this that it's being isolated it's being told that it does not have a future existence and that it's not allowed to survive. <laughs> قليلا ما تذكرون اللهم أرنا الحق حقا ورزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا ورزقنا اجتنابه اللهم اغفر للمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب دعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار Rabban alat is your colubana, brada id hadaitana, wahablana milla dunka rahmatan enta Allah, inna cantel wahab. I bade Allah in Allah hayap murukum, in Allah hayap muru, in Allah or ikatahu, you ala nabi, ya a Yuheladina Amenu, salu alayhi wa taslimah. Allah must sell ala Muhammad, wa ala Ali Muhammad, Kama Sulayta ala Ibrahim. وعلى آل ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى آل ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر ان الانسان لفي خسر الا الذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواسوا بالحق وتواسوا بالصبر ومن ومن اظلم ممن منع مساجد الله ان يذكر في حسبه وَسَعَى فِي قَرَابِهَا أُولَئِكَ مَا كَانَ لَهُمْ أَنْ يَدْخُلُوهَا إِلَّا خَائِفِينَ لَهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا خِزِي وَلَهُمْ فِي الْآخِرَةِ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ رباه الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يَعِذُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ وَلَا ذِكْرَ اللّٰهِ أَكْبَرْ وَاللّٰهُ يَعْلَمُ مَا تصنعون وَاَقِمِ الصَّلَٰهِ Allahu Ekber, Allahu Ekber اشهد أن لا إله إلا اللّٰهِ اشهد أن لا إله إلا اللّٰهِ اشهد أن محمدًا رسول الله اشهد أن محمدًا رسول الله حي على الصلاه حي على الصلاه حي على الفلاح الفلاح